0: to History Zine, show number 17 and that piece of music was the Brandenburg Concerto by Johann Sebastian Bach and it's actually about the right time period for our War of the Spanish Succession feature. We've lots and lots to get through this time so I want to get stuck straight into some feedback. I've had a lot of wonderful feedback since the last episode. Thank you so much for that and I want to particularly address this one. This is a message which brought up a point that I've kind of neglected to mention in these last few podcasts. And this point is one of bias. Now in the front of some of the better history textbooks, you'll often find a short description of the author, his background and some of the things which have influenced him. What he's doing here is to inform you of the bias in the information he's about to offer. All history is biased because all history is recounted by people and people have opinions, beliefs and cultural values which will colour their retelling of the events. Now in this case my background is English. I am an Englishman raised in the north of England, working class background and 45 years of age which means I've been influenced strongly by say, the 1970s as those were my formative years. The bias I wish to mention at the moment, though, is that of having an English perspective. After the last podcast, Antonio L. Rodriguez had this to say. Thanks for the show, Jim. I should say that the Portuguese army, with its allies, performed remarkably well against the Spaniards, securing first the terrain, making sure, like Wellington would do later, that there were no Spanish garrisons left behind before advancing into Madrid. The Allied Army, commanded by the Marquess das Minas, was 15,000 Portuguese and 4,200 Anglo-Dutch strong. It is, however, somewhat frustrating to read that this operation, the invasion of Spain, the taking of Madrid, and the proclamation of Archduke Charles, simply as an English operation conducted by the Count Galway. There was also a lot to say about the behaviour of the English and Dutch soldiers while in Madrid, perhaps more than the rivalry between Spain and Portugal, and the reaction it provoked, in a parallel with what would happen during the French occupation of Madrid, during the Napoleonic period. I still can't really understand why the War of the Spanish Succession was mostly fought outside Spain. Antonio makes a good point that there was a huge Portuguese element to the operation in Spain and of course many brave Portuguese soldiers will have died in this campaign My defence is that I do have a very English perspective and that I must strip things down to tell the story There were many countries involved in the struggle that rarely get a mention, Piedmont and Savoy being two others and I think if you're trying to tell the whole story of the War of the Spanish Succession then you need to focus mainly on the larger countries such as Austria, France, England and the Dutch Republic. As for most of the war of the Spanish Succession being fought outside Spain, yes, this does seem quite baffling if the war is actually about Spain. But what I think it's actually about is the balance of power in Europe. France and the Empire are both potent land forces in Europe England and the Netherlands are both potent naval forces. If any one of these nations manages to grab a greater chunk of the power and influence in Europe, then it could only be to the detriment of the others, affecting trade and making greater resources available to them, and putting them in a position where they could bring all of Europe under their influence. Spain is a much diminished power in the early 1700s, but still a fine prize and the acquisition of Spain could alter the current balance of power significantly quite a few of the major battles of this war were fought in Belgium this is quite central to most of the powers involved it's to the west of Austria and the Germanic states it's to the south of the Dutch Republic the immediate north of France and southeast of England it's important to the Dutch and French as their fortress barrier against each other ...and important to the Empire, as it extends their reach in Europe all the way over to the West Coast. It's also on the doorstep of France and the Dutch Republic. So there's so much more for them to lose if anything goes wrong. Antonio, in a sign-off to one of his messages... ...mentioned that he was proud to be part of the oldest alliance in the world. Now, I knew the Anglo-Portuguese alliance was old but I didn't realise quite how old it was. The alliance goes all the way back to 1373. It's been a very important alliance to England on many occasions, including the Napoleonic Wars and in World War I. So, I fully concur with Antonio there. I too am proud to be part of the oldest alliance in the world. So, thanks for that Antonio, and now on to some reviews. Welcome to the podcast review section. We've got two podcasts for you this time, and the first of these is the Living History Podcast. The Living History Podcast is a podcast about reenactors and living history. And as regular listeners will know, I have a bit of a soft spot for reenactors. I'm often delighted by recreation of historical modes and events, and have enormous respect for the people who indulge in living history and reenactment. Elena and Stefan, who are the hosts of this show, have a wealth of experience as reenactors, so I'm already predisposed to like them. However, a podcast is a piece of entertainment in itself, and it's the podcast you want to hear about. So, I'm going to put aside my predisposition to hold reenactors in such high esteem and take a cold, hard look at the podcast. The Living History Podcast is a newcomer to the podcast arena, with the first episode being posted last year on the 18th of December. And yet, there are already seven episodes on the feed. It's a podcast I very much welcome. I know so little about the nuts and bolts of living history, and this show promises to give me some fascinating insights into this undiscovered country. I started right at the beginning with their introductory show, where they assured me they would tackle topics of interest each week to those on the front lines of history. So assured, I continued to listen. There's not a great deal of substance occurs in the rest of this introductory podcast, but we do learn a little about our presenters, and they communicate a little of what enthuses them about the hobby. This is all useful stuff, and should help me to relate to them and understand their motivations as I continue to listen to the show. There are some problems with those evil P sounds in this episode, but it's not too distracting, and a cheap pop filter will soon fix that. The next two episodes have the titles, Historical Clothing and "Reenacting in the Public. Stefan is a little far from the microphone on this third one. Riding a mob bicycle with traffic noise all around, I found it frustrating to listen to, as for much of the time I could only hear Elena. Listening to only one side of the conversation was a very bizarre experience indeed. The fourth one was an absolute gem. This featured an interview with Mike Bello, who is the chap who puts on the Reenactor fest in Chicago. This interview was engaging, and the enthusiasm was very infectious. And in the sixth show, the phenomena was repeated with another interview, this time with Nora Kyle, who earns a living through living history, but needs to do what sounds like at least 500 jobs to do this. I'm going to jump forwards now to the seventh show, as this one irritated and frustrated me. There was a good deal of useful information in there, but the individual points were laboured and overlong, and made me feel more than a little patronised. For example, the suggestion that one person be nominated as being responsible for the campfire is a good one, but I'm not sure it needs to be spelled out syllable by syllable that fire is a potentially dangerous thing. I reckon we'll be able to figure that out for ourselves. It was this episode which started me wondering who the target audience is. In the introductory episode, they tell us that this podcast is for history buffs, for theatre geeks, for folks that have been reenacting for years, and for those that want to start reenacting. This podcast is for anyone interested in the physics, chemistry, and philosophy of reenacting. So, that's quite a wide brief, but I wanted to do. A little research into who was listening to the podcast and whether they thought it ranged too widely and if they felt it catered for them. I got a lovely reply to my request for information from an Iron Age blacksmith called By. He told me that he adored the podcast and he really liked that it encompassed the whole of the reenacting community rather than just focusing on a specific part of it. Anyway... It's time that i finished up this review and tried to summarise where I've got to. Firstly, there are some quality problems. I can mostly forgive them, as Elena and Stefan are so prolific, and in such a frantic production schedule, something has got to give. Most important thing, though, was volume. I shoved one of these podcasts through Audacity and found that it was a nice clean recording, so therefore it was a simple matter to just highlight the whole file and amplify it. So please, 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 if you can up the volume, please do so. Secondly, sometimes the tone can be a little patronising. This was enough for me to hit the fast-forward button on several occasions. Thirdly, the interviews are absolutely brilliant. Elaine and Stefan have found some wonderful people who have incredible vision, and I thank them for that. I'm sure there are many more such people out there in the Living History community and I very much hope I get to hear from them in future episodes. I'd also like to hear from Nora again as I'm sure she has much more to tell us about her many and varied activities. Fourthly, I like the frequency of the show. It's great knowing there'll be another episode every week. They're doing a lot better than I who manages one about every three months. Fifthly, I'd like to say thank you to Elena and Stefan. There are problems with the show, but they are far from insurmountable, and I very much enjoy listening to it. I hope there are many more. This is a show for reenactors and people who have an interest in the process of reenactment. I can recommend it certainly to those two groups of people. The next one I want to review is a rather different beast altogether. This is a podcast entitled A History of the World In 100 Objects. A History of the World in 100 Objects is a radio series for BBC Radio 4 made in partnership with the British Museum, but it's also being released as 100 15 minute podcasts, which, unlike many other BBC podcasts, will remain available even after the broadcasts have been completed. It's an ambitious project which will attempt to give us a history of the world that is rather less Eurocentric than the histories to which we've grown accustomed. The presenter, Neil MacGregor, director of the British Museum, is a remarkable man. I recommend you take a peek at his Wikipedia entry, where you'll gasp in amazement at the sheer breadth of his learning. As soon as he began to speak, though, I thought, aha, art historian, and checking that Wikipedia entry, I find that indeed he is. It's a very... Precise, and to my ears, sounds quite an affected way of speaking, that I find a little distracting at first. However, the content and enthusiasm pushes me past that, so a couple of minutes into the show, I'm held quite entranced by the information to which I'm listening, and by the beautiful soundscape of the show. McGregor takes an object such as the Clovis spearpoint and tells us where and when it was found, how it would be used, and most importantly of all, how and why people moved and ended up there, in this case in the Americas, so long ago. The podcast is an absolute delight to listen to, and the wide variety of subjects are both a strength and a weakness. The ambition of the series is huge, but if it is to give us a coherent history of the world, it will almost certainly fail, in my opinion. I've listened to nine episodes so far, and already I'm finding myself floundering in a sea of information. I applaud the ambition, but I feel my mind needs some kind of solid structure to hang all this information upon. And the knowledge I already have doesn't give me enough foundation to build this world history structure. However, I'm not going to let this bother me. A history of the world in 100 objects is delightful entertainment. And is introducing me to some incredible objects, absolutely wonderful. And I just want to add a quick P.S. to this review, just to give some kind of balance, because so I've been talking to Anne from the blog AnneIsAMan.blogspot.com, and Anne said my experience is really different. I do feel it has made a successful connection between the episodes and brought across a general tale of development from early hunter-gatherers and tool-users to more sophisticated, cultured art-developers and eventually farmers with an emerging sense of society. But, as it is with all stories, they present the dots and it depends upon the listener to draw the lines between the dots and discern the overall picture. So that's Anne's View from the blog anisaman.blogspot.com, A great blog, a blog that reviews history podcasts, philosophy podcasts, geography podcasts, a whole range of them. Well worth keeping an eye on that blog. And Anne is a very sophisticated and insightful reviewer of podcasts. And now, the linguistic history trivia bit. The printing industry has left us a rich heritage of words and phrases, which are still in use, even though much of the original printing technology is no longer used at all. For the linguistic history trivia bit this time, I'm going to pick out just two examples of this. The first example is two words, uppercase and lowercase. We refer to capital letters as uppercase and the rest of the letters as lowercase. In this case... It's all about drawers, or cases, as they're known in printing. Now, I've actually seen some of these things in a museum in Leeds. That's a city in the north of England. It's a place called Armley Mills, and it's absolutely stuffed to the gills with giant 19th-century machinery of all shapes and sizes. And one of the rooms contains nothing but printing machines, and also lots of movable type. There's drawers and drawers and drawers of the stuff. These are all the individual letters used to make up the words for the story you're printing. They're all kept in shallow drawers in a large unit, with lots and lots of different fonts in there. While someone was typesetting, that's laying out all the letters, they would pull out two drawers which were the same font, but one drawer case would be the smaller letters, and the other drawer, or case, would be the larger ones. You'd place these on the sloping shelf in front of you with the smaller ones nearest as they would be the ones used most and the capital letter case would be placed above them on your sloping surface so that would be your upper case and the smaller letters down here would be your lower case so that's upper and lower case sounds exactly like what it means the next one I think is also a printing phrase and this is the phrase the wrong end of the stick now if you google this you'll find another phrase Which is also the wrong end of the stick. But the two of them have different meanings. One of them means the shit end of the stick. It's usually used to refer to you getting the poor end of the bargain. The bad end of the deal. And if you look that one up, you'll find many of the explanations quite fun. There's one that's described as being possibly Roman in origin. And to picture the scene for this one. You need really to have seen one of those ancient Rome documentary programmes about life in a Roman fort. For those who haven't, I should try and draw a word picture. Imagine you wish to visit the toilet. Well, the Romans were pretty civilised and would sit on something much as many of us do now. And the waste they produce would fall into a channel. If possible, they would arrange for it so this channel had running water on it which would carry everything away. One of the main differences to our modern-day conveniences is that everyone sat together while they did this. You'd be all lined up on this wall structure, sitting and chatting while you did what you had to do. And then the soldiers would wipe their bums with a stick that had a bit of sponge on the end, and if you handed the stick to someone else to use, there was the possibility you could hand them the more unpleasant end of the stick. By mistake, perhaps. Now, this seems a little bit unlikely to me certainly in Roman army circles, as there seems to be a good deal of evidence that leads us to believe that every soldier carried his own stick and therefore there'd be no need to share. It's also not the phrase I'm looking for. It's the one I intend to talk about. Is another wrong end of the stick. This is the one that means someone's heard what you've said but they've completely misinterpreted it. So they've heard you but think you actually mean something else. This is also known... ...as getting the wrong end of the stick. And I found a couple of explanations for this one. One, seems to have grown out the phrase, the worst end of the staff. If you've got a walking stick with the pointy bit at one end... ...and the bit you lean on at the other... ...then it will only be useful one way around. However, the one which fits the phrase best is the printing term. Remember, we were talking about the typesetter... ...picking out the letters from his cases to make up the words... Well, it stacked them together on a little hand-held rack thing. This rack was known as a composing stick, and the letters must be loaded onto stick the wrong way around so that when you drop the stick and all its letters face down onto the galley, the letters would then be the right way around for the printing process. A beginner or someone not paying attention could easily get a hold of the wrong end of the stick, and therefore the resulting text, once printed, would be quite meaningless. So there you go, upper and lower case and getting hold of the wrong end of the stick. I have for you now a short interview I grabbed with Richard Saunders from History Press Books. Richard Saunders had come along to speak at a careers event in Cambridge and I I managed to get into this event and grabbed hold of Richard for a few words right at the end. You'll find the History Press at www uk. A quick apology in advance for the sound quality in this interview. We were in a big lecture theatre. Sound carries beautifully in a lecture theatre, but it's not ideal if you want to do a podcast interview. Right, so first I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about The History Press and uh, what it does and what it publishes.
1: Okay. well it's all a small to medium sized company, it's not one of the largest companies, not one of the smallest either. Uh, I publish books all across the UK. I think our main areas are basically local history. Yeah. Um, So that's obviously right across the country. And also specialist titles like military books, biographies, that sort of thing as well. There's quite a big spread of titles. I mean, some of our books are hardback, £25, and other ones are quite small, or paperback gift books almost. So it's quite a big spread across the market. And which ones are the big sellers at the moment? I think um, certain of our local history titles do very well. Ones that have been focused on a certain area have been like South Wales and Sheffield for some reason tend to sell very, very well mm-hmm. and also the one-off books as well like there's been um, a book recently about a woman who researched her father's past and he was actually a young um, camp guard at Auschwitz and that's sold oh. very, very well and a lot of publicity it's been involved in newspaper headlines as well Mm-hmm. Um, and also, one about uh, air hostesses in the I mean, little niche books that have been focused on a certain market as well and, and really pushed my marketing. Yeah. And quite often, they'll be reviewed in the major papers that well. I don't sell very well.
0: Right, and you hinted in the discussion earlier on something about the commissioning process. Mm. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the commissioning process and if there's a submission process as well.
1: Um, in terms of authors submitting their own work a lot of time they will just send us a sample chapter or an idea mm. along with a letter and that's, that's pretty much right the process starts we'll send them the questionnaire a standard questionnaire which I'll then fill in and then if you think the book is viable or, sometimes it will be a standard book and they only a completely new idea yeah. and it'll just be a, a single book other times mm. they'll have a similar idea to one of our series already and we'll say well it's be really interesting how about you do it as part of this series yeah and then a lot of the other books we publish are actually ones where, where marketing or sales identify a gap. So they're saying there's no haunted for Liverpool or the original order and find book of for Sheffield. Yeah. And we'll then go and look at local history societies, look at paranormal societies, and try and find an author that fits what we want.
0: Right. Okay. All great. Right. Thank you very much. No and finally, before we go into the main feature, I want to make an announcement. I'm opening an online shop, especially for history nerds like you and me. I'm starting it at the moment with a selection of birthday cards which feature a number of famous historical figures. These are all cards which I, I hope people will find are amusing, interesting and intriguing. They have a picture on the front with a little slogan and on the back is about three quarters of an A5 page of information about the person on the front. So hopefully people will find these cards fun and informative. I also have a bunch of ideas, still in my head at the moment, for amazing products to delight and entertain we history nerds, and I hope you'll all go along to take a look. You'll find the shop at web address historyshopper.com That's historyshopper, all one word, dot com. Please, have a look at the cards on offer now, Let me know your thoughts and let me know what sort of things you'd like to see in the shop. Payment for the cards is via PayPal or Google Checkout. If you want me to send your card direct to the recipient, then please send me a message after you've bought the card, either to jimathistoryzine.com or using the contact form in the shop, giving details of who you'd like me to send it to and what you'd like me to say. Hope you like the shop let me know what you think of it. It's at historyshopper.com and you can email me at jim at historyzine.com And now on to the main feature, The War of the Spanish Succession. It is time now ...for the Zine special feature, and this is the War of the Spanish Succession. Before I start, I want to just crowbar in a quick geographical note. In this episode, I shall refer quite often to the Spanish Netherlands and the estates of Brabant. These lands are contained in the area we know today as Belgium. This is a chunk of land to the south of the Netherlands, the north of France and west of Germany. I shall also refer to the Empire, and that's the Austrian Holy Roman Empire, which includes Austria, the Germanic lands, and parts of what is today Italy. Hopefully that will give you a couple of anchor points in this sea of information. So, what is the Spanish Succession? This is a European war, fought between France and Spain on one side, and England, the Dutch Republic, and the Austrian Empire on the other. Between the years... 1701 to 1714. The Spanish throne was in dispute. There was a French claimant and an Austrian claimant with both sides fearful that if the other should claim the Spanish throne then they would hold too much power in Europe. In the last episode of History Z, we covered the Battle of Ramillies and explored the strategies which led to a victory of staggering proportions for the Anglo-Dutch-Austrian alliance on May 23rd, 1706. The sides had looked evenly matched, and France had sent out some of her finest troops in order that the wild claims as to the genius of Marlborough, the Allied commander, could be put to rest. On the day of the battle, the Duke of Marlborough more than proved himself as a most remarkable commander, and around four hours the French army broke and was utterly routed in one of the most crushing defeats ever suffered by a French army. So, what happened next? It's midnight after the battle, several miles away in the fortified city of Levan. Marshal Villois gathers around him the remnants of the French High Command. Spirits are very low indeed, but they still have a job to do they must collect together what is left of the army, seek a defensive and defendable position and attempt to bar the inevitable advance of the Allies. Viroir made plans for a swift withdrawal to take up a defensive position back through Brabant toward France itself. The Midnight Council in Louvain decided to move back over the rivers Dille and Seine and take up a position behind the river Scheldt, hoping to cover Ghent Bruges and Ostend and possibly hamper any attacks upon Antwerp it was a long way back and left so many cities exposed but with only around 15,000 men under his control at that time Villois felt he had no option the Duke of Marlborough moved forward quickly and relentlessly he'd had a marvellous victory but now was the time to capitalise upon this and make as many gains as possible in the fortress zone, while there was no substantial French army around, to impede the necessary sieges. On the 25th of May, a detachment was sent to call upon the surrender of the town Louvain. It did so immediately. On the 26th, Marlborough was encamped upon the River Seine. He called upon the cities of Malines and Brussels to surrender. The long train of this 50,000 strong Allied army continued to push forward, not knowing quite how many men Vilwa still controlled, but knowing they must keep up the pressure and retain the initiative. It was around this time that news of enormous significance began to arrive at the Allied camp. The magistrates of Brussels and the estates of Brabant returned their answers, affirming... ...that they wished to change their allegiance to Charles III. He's the Austrian claimant to the Spanish throne. However, other messages were coming in... ...which made it clear there was a full-scale switch of allegiance... ...from the Spanish authorities throughout the whole of the Spanish Netherlands. Marlborough was staggered at the scale of this capitulation... ...as was everyone else. He had no orders or remit for such a situation and no time to contact London or The Hague for instructions, but, nevertheless, he applied himself to the task. He met together with the administrators for the region to accept their change of allegiance. His first action was to restore the famous charter, La Joyeuse Entrée. Now, I've made no secret of my admiration for the Duke of Marlborough throughout this story, and here again, is an instance which leaves me shaking my head in wonderment at his consummate professionalism and common sense. Here, we have a region which will be vital to the war effort, and one that is right on the border with France. If the people of this region can be won over, then France will find it so much more difficult to regain this territory and threaten the Netherlands. The joyous entrée... It's a charter which is held in extremely high esteem in the Brabant. It's possibly equivalent to, say, the Magna Carta in England. It was first granted by Duke John III of Brabant in 1354, and contained a number of promises undertaken by the Dukes of the region. The promises involved unity, mutual peace treaties, and not to impose taxes without the consent of the subjects of the Dukes. This charter was much cherished by the people of Brabant and instantly cemented the new relationship with the Allies and Charles III. Marlborough guaranteed all religious and civil rights and also issued an order to his troops of lesser moment but of probably more immediate practicality that any soldier caught plundering or molesting the inhabitants would be put to death. In my opinion, this was exactly the right action to take at this time and in this place. Meanwhile he's still pushing the Allied troops forward, hoping to engage with the remnants of Villois' army and taking as much territory as possible for the Allies. Villois had been hoping to take up a position at Ghent, but the swift movement of the Allies towards Gavre threatened to cut off his line of communication with France, and so he pulled back further toward the border to stop at Courtrai So Marlborough is pushing hard right up to the borders of France, but there are still a number of powerful French fortresses to deal with, many of which control the river crossings. and This will cause him a great deal of frustration, as he can move his troops quickly, but without full control of the rivers, the movement of his siege train is very slow indeed. Meanwhile, you might be wondering what the French king thinks of all this. Well, between the day of the battle, that's the 23rd of May, and the 26th of May, not very much, as he was still waiting for the news. As usual, there was a dearth of volunteers waiting to break the bad news to the king. However, on the 26th, a letter arrived from Villois for the court chamberlain, giving him news of his son. From this, Louis gathered that something had gone horribly wrong at Ramillies. But, unfortunately, he heard nothing more. He dispatched Chamillat to seek out Villois and gained some more detailed knowledge of what had happened at Ramelais. On the 31st of May, eight days after the battle, Chamillat met Viroy and was given details of the full scale of the defeat and of the amount of territory ceded to the Allies. Chamillat returned with his report, and Louis reacted instantly and decisively. He pulled back French troops from the Rhine, and recalled the best of his commanders, Vendôme, from Italy, to command the armies protecting France herself. This move will have major repercussions, and it's one that's been criticised many times by a multitude of historians. I feel, however, that as a sovereign, Louis was duty-bound to take strong measures to ensure the security of France. Even if there was the possibility of greater gains in other arenas, his first duty is to France herself. Although I believe this was the only decision he could take, there is no doubt that the effect this had on the Italian campaign was enormous, and to get a handle on this particular enormity, I want us to skip over to the far side of the Alps and take a look at some of the events happening there. Louis Fourteenth and his generals had hoped for great things in Italy this year, the Duke of Vendôme had won a fine victory at Calcinato very early in the season, and so disabled the imperial army that it seemed incapable of offensive action. The French plan was to split its army in two. La Fuade was to besiege Turin, and Vendôme was to hold a position on the river Adige in Lombardy and Piedmont to stop any forces coming to the aid of the besieged city. If you're looking on a map as to where these events are taking place then you want to look way up there in the north of Italy with Turin being in the west, closest to France. They would expect any imperial forces to arrive from the east and therefore Vendôme's troops are pushed over in that direction waiting for them to arrive. Calcinato had been a fine victory for Vendôme and Prince Eugène had taken the remaining imperial forces into the mountains for shelter until the German reinforcements that Marlborough had organised during his winter negotiations could arrive. While he waited, Vendorm took the opportunity to fortify his lines along the Adige. He was in a strong position, but Eugène will have not felt too disheartened knowing there were some excellent Palatine, Prussian and Saxe-Gotha troops making their way to him at that very moment. It looked as if it was going to be a very tough fighting season, but the French must have felt quite confident that Turin would fall and Prince Eugène would be unable to come to its aid. It is at this point that we join up again with the events in Belgium. Marlborough has been triumphant at Ramelais, and Vendon was told to return to the Brabant and take command of the armies facing the Duke of Marlborough. Marshal Marsin was sent to replace him in Italy, and Vendôme recommended that Marsin be accompanied by a Prince of the Blood, so as to command respect among people who had a very high regard for nobility. The King took his advice, and sent the Duke of Orléans, to add weight to the word of Marsin in negotiations. Vendorme waited there for Massin and the Duke of Orléans to arrive, closely watching the crossings on the river Adige for Prince Eugène's forces, and Marshal Fuyade pressed home the siege of Turin. He began to build the siege entrenchments of circumvallation and contravallation, but before they could be completed, Victor Amadeus, the Duke of Savoy, broke out from the town with 6,000 cavalry in order that he could hamper the activities of the besiegers from outside the city. La Fuade immediately detached a number of his troops and went in pursuit of the duke, much to the dismay of the king, who had indicated that the swift capture of Turin was of paramount importance and nothing should be allowed to impede the progress of this siege. It is entirely possible, though, that La Fuade, whose standing at court was never high, "'hoped the capture of the Duke of Savoy "'would be of a greater personal benefit to him "'in raising his status. "'Day after day he pursued the Duke, "'always to find him just out of reach, "'and meanwhile the siege continued, "'all too slowly, "'and the outer siege entrenchments, "'the lines of contravallation, "'were never completed, "'so not fulfilling their function "'of totally cutting off the city "'from outside assistance.' Prince Eugène had now gathered most of his reinforcements and was ready to move. The empire was now on comparatively friendly terms with Venice and this allowed them to move through the neutral Venetian territories with between twenty-five and 30,000 men. Vendôme, too, had 30,000 men but they were strung along the river Adige attempting to watch all the crossings at once. Because of this, when Eugène made his move he was able to push forward past the Adige without too much difficulty. This caused Vendôme to hurriedly pull his troops back, but he still felt confident that Eugène would not be able to disturb the siege at Turin. It is at this point that Marsin arrived and Vendôme handed over command, so that he could return to the Low Countries to protect the borders of France. At around the same time, the Duke of Orléans arrived before Turin, to find the siege progressing slowly, and a large detachment of French forces had been diverted 40 miles south to Turasco in an attempt to capture the Duke of Savoy. He wrote long and bitter letters to the king criticising the conduct of the Marshal Lafuade, but having no significant military rank of his own, he could do little other than offer advice. Massin, who had replaced Vendôme, busily rearranged his troops along the river Mincio and the river Oglio in order to protect the river crossings there. He's still covering a lot of territory with his 30,000 troops, but much less than before. Eugène pressed on, and yet again turned those defensive lines, reaching the river Po and advancing up the river toward Turin. Massan gathered his troops, and marched them along the northern bank of the Po, keeping pace with Prince Eugène, still confident that he would be able to block any attempt to save the city. Unfortunately for Massin, an added complication came into play. The Prince of Hesse arrived, with 4,000 more troops for Prince Eugène. And Eugène had already left several thousand troops behind. And these, joined with the 4,000 that just arrived, meant that Marsan had quite a sizeable bunch of troops to worry about. Therefore, he felt compelled to detach around 10,000 of his own men to face the Prince of Hesse just south of Lake Garda. This now meant that Massin was probably not in a position where he could directly challenge Eugène with the forces he had under his command. His options had been reduced to only one, and that was to follow Eugène and then confront him when he joined with La Furade's army at the lines of contravalation at Turin. And so Eugène continued relentlessly onwards and joined up with Victor Amadeus, That's the Duke of Savoy, at Villa Stelloni, 12 miles south of Turin. Eugène now commanded 30,000 regular troops, plus a few thousand armed peasants. The French could muster almost 60,000 men. If they had called off the siege and brought their whole force to bear upon Eugène, then not even the daring and brilliance of this prince could have carried the day. But Marsan, wallowing in a pit of despair and indecision, refused to do this. On the 7th of September, he faced the attacking imperial army with only part of his forces, and backed by unfinished lines of contravallation. Eugène, in marked contrast to Marsan, was full of confidence. Prior to the battle, he was asked where to fix the headquarters for the night. "'In Turin,' he replied, and rode forward into battle.' The Palatines and the Prussians led the assault, with the Brandenburgers pushing strongly upon the French right flank. By about one o'clock the French were broken and the Governor of Turin completed the victory by sallying out of the city to fall upon the French from the rear. The Marshal Marsin was mortally wounded during the battle and died soon afterwards. The remaining French forces retreated northwards and kept on going until they had abandoned Italy entirely. It was a stunning victory, against incredible odds, and much of the blame for the French defeat must lie at the feet of Marshal Massin himself. He had made a number of poor decisions, and seemed strangely despondent throughout the campaign. The reasons for his black mood became clearer some time later from a letter sent to the French king's minister, Chamillat. "'As this letter is not to be given you till after my death, should it come this year, "'I beg you to preserve the secret of the weakness which haunts me. "'Ever since I received the orders of the king to go to Italy, "'I have not been able to clear from my mind the conviction that I shall be killed in this campaign.' "'A death in the workings of God's pity "'thrusts itself upon me at every moment "'and possesses me day and night. "'Since I have been in this country, "'nothing can relieve my presentiment "'except my hope in God.'" It's quite possible that this presentiment became a self-fulfilling prophecy. It probably explains why Marsan just seems to have been treading water until his defeat, rather than taking the decisive strokes which are needed for success on the battlefield. So, Prince Eugène now dominates the Italian peninsula. Barcelona has been saved, and Philip ejected from Spain. And Marlborough has won a great victory at Ramirez. It was truly an annus mirabilis for the Allies. But let's return to the Low Countries and see what gains Marlborough is making there as a result of his victory. We've already seen him push the remaining French troops all the way back to Coutre. There are many garrison cities left behind and the Duke moves quickly to reduce these. Ghent is taken and then Marlborough seeks to reduce the large and affluent city of Antwerp. I'll read you this extract from a letter sent to the Finance Minister and Marlborough's friend, Lord Godolphin. I have sent Brigadier Carrigan with six squadrons of horse to offer terms to the town. And citadel at Antwerp. If I can have that place without a siege, it will gain us a month. I am doing all I can to gain the governor of Dondormand, which place would be of great consequence. They have let out the water so that we cannot attack it. As soon as we have Antwerp, and can get our artillery ostend, we shall attack the place, at which time it will be necessary that the Dunkirk squadron should help us. Marsan will join them tomorrow with 18 battalions and 14 squadrons and I am sure that orders are gone to Marshal de Villas to send 30 battalions more and 40 squadrons, so that Prince Louis, the Margrave, may act if he pleases. I have ordered the Hanover troops to join me, and we hope to have the Prussians, which will enable me to make the detachment for the descent. If Prince Louis makes use of this occasion to press the French in Alsace, as I will, with the blessing of God in this country, the King of France will be obliged to draw some troops from Italy, by which Turin may be saved. We have nothing now that stops us but for the want of cannon, for the French cannot have their troops from Germany in less than three weeks. We march tomorrow to Danes, and the French are retired behind Menon, by which, you see, we are at liberty to attack Ostend and Naipot, if we had our artillery. This letter gives us a good idea of what's happening at the time, but I want to clarify a few things in it. The first is that this is before Marsa has been sent out to Italy, and before the relief of Turin. So the fate of that city was still in the balance at the time. Secondly, Marlborough mentions the siege train, i.e. his cannons. The French still hold some of the river crossings, and anything as heavy as siege artillery should be brought along the rivers. It's possible to move it overland, but it's an exceedingly slow process. So, as you can see, it's absolutely vital that it gets control of those river crossings. He soon received the joyous news from Antwerp that they had capitulated, and immediately departed for the Hague, in order to arrange for the administration of this, and so many other cities, which had declared for Charles III. On his return to the army, he passed through Antwerp, and was given the keys to the city, and told... They had never been delivered up to any person since the great Duke of Parma, and that after a siege of twelve months. You'll note the political point being made here at the end of that statement, that Antwerp could have made things very difficult for the Duke, and that he should appreciate that they didn't. Ostend was the next town on the list, and the great Dutch commander Orkirk conducted the siege with support from the English navy, shelling Ostend from the sea. Poor Ostend was reduced to rubble, and taken by storm on July the 4th, 1706. Marlborough moved on to Courtrai and then lay siege to fine Vauban Fortress of Menon. Vendôme had arrived from Italy, and immediately set to work pulling troops from a number of garrisons in an attempt to form another field army. The King also engaged all his resources, as he too bent every fibre of his being to get the troops in place and halt the seemingly unstoppable force of Marlborough. As the campaigning season progresses, the initial panic is waning. The French now once again have a field army, and so the Allies can only risk besieging one city at a time. To split their forces might leave them open to attack from a larger force. There is no doubt that the Allies will make significant gains but there will be sufficient French troops in place to halt any advance into France, and they may even be able to hold on to some of the fortresses in the Brabant. Menon held out bravely, and the losses to the Allies when they attained the ramparts were heavy indeed. They lost as many in this siege as they had at the Battle of Ramelais. It was taken, however, and the Allied army were able to move on to a place which was widely considered as one of the more difficult challenges a besieging army might face. This was the fortress of Dondermonde, a fortress of vital strategic importance at the juncture of the Scheldt and the Donder. When Louis XIV heard that the Allies were attacking Dondermonde, he quipped merrily that only an army of ducks could take it, and ordinarily this would have been the case. Two great rivers meet here, the Scheldt and the Donder. The town had a defence system which could use the water from these rivers to surround it and create some extreme difficulties for potential besiegers. This time, though, it seemed the fates were on the side of the Allies. The area was suffering quite a severe drought and had gone for seven weeks without rain. The siege was pushed forward and the seemingly unassailable Dant was taken in only one week. On September the 6th, one day after the town had surrendered, the rains came and continued unabated for four days. This was remarkable fortune, indeed. With Dondormond taken, Marlborough could look again at pushing toward the French border. He lay siege now to the fortress of At. Vendome, who was nearby with a newly formed French field army, asked of his king whether he should attack. The king, after the bitter lesson of Ramillies was now rather more reticent than before, and told him that he absolutely must not. He attacks places, writes the King, in the hope of enticing you thither. As a result, the siege was allowed to continue unimpeded by the French army, and on October the 2nd, at Fell. We have now reached the end of the campaigning season, and the truly miraculous achievements for the Allies of the year 1706. It had begun tentatively, even disastrously in Italy, where Prince Eugene suffered a major defeat at Calcinato. From then, almost everything had seemed to fall into place for the Allies. In the low countries, there had been the victory at Ramillies, swiftly followed by the capture of so many fine fortresses, and the wholesale switch of loyalties in the Spanish Netherlands. In Spain, the siege of Barcelona had been lifted, and the French chased from the peninsula. Some time later, despite a good deal of procrastination, the Allied forces had entered Madrid. In Italy, the Siege of Turin had been lifted. Eugène and the Duke of Savoy had triumphed and driven the French out of Italy. The Allies must have looked back on 1706 with a great deal of satisfaction. However, there were a few dark clouds gathering on the horizon. "'Spanish feeling had turned against the Allied armies in Spain. "'The Duke of Berwick had gathered a large French force, "'and a significant number of Spanish noblemen and soldiers around him, "'and was beginning to look very dangerous indeed. "'In the Low Countries there was also a problem, "'and this one was more than a little perverse. "'It was perverse because the man at the centre of these difficulties "'was the hero of the hour, the Duke of Marlborough himself.' the Duke had fallen victim to rather a vicious little exercise in geopolitics. Now, I agonise a little over whether to talk to you about this, as, although I find it fascinating, I know quite a number of you out there may not do so. I notice Richard Holmes in his book, Marlborough, England's Fragile Genius, bypassed this incident quite quickly. However, I think this does give us a few clues as to why Marlborough fell from favour in later years, and shows the difficulties the European powers have with working with each other. The problem was the Spanish Netherlands. As G.M. Trevelyan says in Ramelais and the Union with Scotland, the bear had been killed, and the hunters at once fell out over the spoil. The Dutch Republic wanted their barrier, first and foremost, and the fortresses of the Spanish Netherlands, Belgium, would do quite nicely, thank you. Gaining a fortress barrier and therefore security from France was their reason for being in this war after all. The Dutch were also being put to vast expense by this war and felt it not unreasonable that they should recoup some of the expense for the defence of this region by collecting the revenues from it. Now the Empire felt rather differently about all this. The Spanish Netherlands were Spanish and had declared for Charles III the Austrian claimant to the Spanish throne. The Emperor Joseph, acting on behalf of his brother Charles, stated that the region should be put under the control of a governor named by him, and that revenues should go back to the empire. He felt that the Allies should continue to field their armies in the Spanish Netherlands for the duration of the war, and at their own expense, and that they should withdraw as soon as it was over. Count guss as representative of the Habsburg Interest, demanded a meeting with the Dutch deputies to negotiate administration of the region, and was refused. And in the third week of June, the Dutch Treasurer was in the region arranging the taxation. Count Goose then turned to Marlborough for assistance. The Duke counseled patience and asked that the Empire wait until hostilities were ended, before pursuing the dispute further. He wished to try and hold the alliance together so that the whole holding of the Spanish monarchy could be transferred to Charles III. Goose was unimpressed by this, suspecting that the Dutch may not wish to pursue the war any further now that they had recaptured so many fortresses in the fortress zone. If they got control of these fortresses, then they could rebuild their barrier against future French expansion and would not aid the efforts in Spain any further. Count Goose reported this situation to the Emperor, who came up with a brilliant plan to try and subvert the obstinacy of the Dutch. He returned a message which appointed the Duke of Marlborough to the governorship of the region. This was a fine political move, and one that was very attractive to Marlborough and the English monarchy and government. Despite their protestations, the English did have ambitions in Belgium, namely the seaports, to assist with trade, and these seaports would also assist them to funnel troops into Europe through Belgium, rather than having to go through the Dutch Republic, and therefore they could act independently from the Dutch Republic. It also meant their man Marlborough would hold a great deal of power at the centre of operations in the Low Countries. Now, for Marlborough himself, this was a wonderful opportunity. It came with a large salary and enormous prestige. For a man who had been born into genteel poverty, and into a family that was very much out of favour, it would have seemed a desperately tempting opportunity. There is no doubting that Marlborough wanted very much to accept this wonderful honour. However, there were a number of obstacles to his accepting. One was that he would have been very much more beholden to Habsburg interests and the Empire. But the second was the real deal-breaker and that was the reaction of the Dutch. Marlborough was pretty certain that the Dutch would object to his appointment to the role, but his desire to accept may have blinded him a little to just how strong would be their objection. I'll read you here a letter he sent to his friend Godolphin, the English treasurer, concerning this offer. I received last night an express from Vienna, with the enclosed letter, in Latin, from the Emperor. I shall keep it here as a secret, till I know from you what Her Majesty's pleasure is, as also I shall take measures with my friends in Holland, to know how they will like it, for I must take care that they take no jealousy. Whatever the Queen's resolution may be, I beg no notice may be taken, till the Emperor's minister shall apply to Her Majesty. I beg you to assure the Queen, that I have in this matter, nor never shall have in any other, any desire of my own, but with all the submission in the world, be pleased with what she shall think is for her interest. Now, it's not absolutely explicit, but I think you can probably tell from this letter that he's hoping there may be some possibility that he might be allowed to receive this honour, and indeed, the reply from England was very favourable. The Queen advised that she would be happy for him to accept, and that he must decide in this matter as he saw fit. He also showed the letter from Vienna to the Dutch treasurer who was present in his camp. The Dutch reaction was that the Emperor was using Marlborough against the Dutch, and there could be problems of undue English influence in the area. They're almost certainly thinking of the seaports, which would be of great value to England after the war, and of great detriment to the Dutch Republic, which would be the main trade competitor to England. As you see, it's a fearful tangle, and Marlborough is now at the centre of this dispute. Marlborough's main aim here, though, has to be to try and hold together the alliance and the Dutch, with all their money and all their armies, are absolutely vital to the alliance. So, no matter where his sympathies or ambitions may lie, there is only one real answer to this offer. And that is to reject it. Unfortunately for the Duke, the damage is now done. The Empire is furious with him For refusing the position and so allowing control of Belgium to slip from their grasp. And the Dutch are highly suspicious of him for entering into the negotiations in the first place. They know how much he wanted this position and they know he has refused it because of them. So they're certain that he must hold this against them. It might seem a small thing but my feeling is that this little bit of politicking is one of the reasons that Marlborough's influence and central position at the heart of everything is jeopardised. Later in the war, to the detriment of the Allies, he will play a lesser role, and this piece of unpleasantness was probably enough to sour feelings towards him. It's ironic indeed that it was his greatest success that created a situation in which his favour was to take such a knock Militarily, his reputation is still unassailable. But politically, he doesn't have the persuasiveness he did previously. So that's 1706. A year of victory for the Allies, a great chance for peace. But Spain is not yet secured, and there are still some French fortresses holding out against the Allied advance in the fortress zone. So next time in History Zine, we'll be looking at the year 1707. Look forward to talking to you then. I shall leave you with air on the G-string, Johann Sebastian Bach, and bye for now.